Well, welcome uh, to episode 97 of The Professor and the Hack. Um, I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, shivering as is much of the country, it seems, at the moment. And the Professor, Peter Van Onselen, um, uh, political editor G'day, of the Network, Professor of every University you've ever heard of. Um, <laughs> how are you, Peter? Yeah, I'm good. It's cold like you, but I'm I'm huddled up with the cat. It's the only time that the cat ever wants to be near somebody else and it's got nothing to do with camaraderie next to the fire so that we're mm. staying nice and warm. We're recording this for the sake of our listeners quite early in the morning. That's why it's so cold. Uh, and it's that freeze, that snap freeze, Hugh, that's, that's coming across Sydney and, and other parts of uh, the East Coast, certainly. Well, I've made the difficult decision to chop up my children and feed them into the fire just to keep it burning. <laughs> uh, firewood being a, a, a stern expense at this time. Um, I, I only half joke metaphorically because some people, I think a lot of people actually don't care about this, but uh, I think others care a great deal. And I'm starting to edge myself into that second category about the notion of sacrificing children to the idea of uh, some principle. Notice mm. the segue there, rather painful, but nevertheless, I'm going <laughs> with it. And I'm talking, of course, about Tharnika and Kopika, the, the two little Tamil girls from the Biloela family. Uh, I, I feel as if there's, there's almost some sort of ground shift going on about uh, the fate of these children and that family with uh, little Tharnika being taken to hospital with what appears to be a blood disorder and flown to Christmas Island, their prison now for some years uh, down to Perth. Um, what are the we'll get to the humanity we'll get to the principle what are the politics of this now yeah the politics are interesting i mean just i think listeners need to know this about me i've advocated for refugee rights as well as far more open borders if i could put it that way and, and less stringent uh, border protection rules around boat people, for example, and asylum seekers more broadly, not just those who receive refugee status for quite some time uh, and almost just gave up uh, eventually when it became a, a bipartisan um, capitulation, if you like, to the idea that tough borders were required because of the community's view on this. You know, it almost became a capitulation to the realities of majoritarian democracy to some extent. Uh, so I wrote a lot more about this than you know, in years gone by than I have more recently. And the reason I start with that is because I think it's worth reflecting on that because I think you're right that there might be a bit of a change at least as far as one aspect of it goes. And that's what you're talking about, which we'll get to with the humanitarian side of it towards these children in particular who are um, you know, born and raised in Australia rather than being stuck behind a barbed wire for a large portion of that. And, and on Christmas Island, only getting to get out to get to school before having to go back to their cage. So it's an interesting one politically, Hugh, because the government is now facing pressure points because of the increasing concern in sections of the Australian community about the humanitarian side of this. That is, you know, release them into a community that wants them back in rural Queensland. Uh, think of the children who are for all intents and purposes Australian citizens in, in the sense of birthright, uh, even if not legal right necessarily. But the government is still running tired lines, and I think they are tired now, that they can't capitulate because I think Michaelia Cash in a speech in Perth used rhetoric along the lines of, if we blink, then it will be seen for what it is and then that could restart the boats. 
we hear Karen Andrews as the Home Affairs Minister referencing this idea that we're saving lives by being brutal to this family because it makes it acts as a deterrent to others taking the dangerous voyage by sea. Uh, the Prime Minister, more than anyone, has done this sort of rhetoric over the years, going back to when he was Tony Abbott's immigration minister, enforcing tough border laws when they came to power in 2013. The politics have always been on the coalition's side when it comes to tough border policies. And in a strange way, the pandemic has confirmed that ethos amongst people about having tough borders in a different sphere where we've seen crackdowns by state premiers with tough borders around the pandemic or indeed tough international borders now around the pandemic. But at the at the individual level of this family, I think people are starting to wonder whether that's a bit of a con that you can't have at least an element of exceptionalism for this family. And we should note that they weren't even classified as refugees, interestingly. Technically, they're Tamil, but technically they, their, their determination to, to get refugee status was rejected, which surprised me given the plight of the Tamils in Sri Lanka, but that is what it is. But the point about them is that governments always have the capacity to make exceptions. The, the legislation allows for the Home Affairs Minister to make exemptions for particular cases. Labor has been on a unity ticket largely around this awful sphere of border protection, and it has waved through with a green light almost all border protection amendments to the legislation that have been put in place. But on this issue, Labor is being loud and proudly against where the government sits uh, and calling on Karen Andrews to use her ministerial right in conjunction, I suppose, with Alex Hawke as the immigration minister, as the junior minister, to find an exemption here. And I suspect that most Australians agree with it. But my depressing final thought before throwing back to you is that whilst I do think this is a hot issue now and the hospitalisation of the child has, has helped the campaign to free them and show some compassion, I'm not sure it is as big a issue in voter land, if I could put it that way, or in mainstream Australia or in marginal seat Australia, as it perhaps is amongst the commentariat. And, and the government will be gauging that as it tries to think about what its response is. And I think that final sentence there goes to the very heart of it. The government will be gauging the public reaction. And that, to me, points to the fact that this isn't a question of principle, uh, ultimately. It is a question of where is the political damage to the government. Does anyone doubt that if their internal polling came back and said this has now become a signal image, a sort of a symbolic uh, black flag that's being attached by voters in marginal seats to this government as an emblem of their cruelty, uh, and therefore the voters wish to reject this government on the basis that they feel that there's something smelly and mean about it, and therefore they could cost them seats at the next election, uh, does anyone for an instant doubt that the ministerial discretions that are available uh, wouldn't be used to let them stay? And I think that very point goes to the fact that it's not ultimately about principle. I do agree with the principle that a country is entitled to secure its borders. In fact, it's required to secure its borders. And a refugee policy is, is you know, they're entitled to run it as an orderly process to the degree that they can on the basis that we can't save every refugee in the world. We never will. So therefore, why don't we have an ordered process and try and run it that way? I can accept that those arguments. But the notion, and I can agree with them, but the notion that uh, 
that it is all about you know high principle about saving lives as opposed to where the votes are is is a folly and if i can point to on this i think there's always been a bit of a folly as well though has to i mean even to the extent that there's some truth that you can put as they like to term it sugar on the table even to the extent that that has moments of argument and validity in the debate even if i don't agree with it uh on this case in the context of the pandemic and the here and now of where we're at it is rubbish to argue that this is going to sort of somehow unleash new boat arrivals if they show some exceptionalism here and i know you're still going to but just as one quick thing people forget that john howard quietly let almost everyone from the mv tampa into the country when the time came he just didn't do it when the spectre and the glow and the focus and the political heat was on Interesting. Well, of course, the godfather of the Pacific uh, Solution was uh, Philip Ruddock, the immigration minister at the time under the Howard government. And as luck would have it, I was standing in the street outside the federal court in Sydney yesterday in the chill and the rain. No one was around. Uh, I glanced up and who should be walking, going about his lawful business, but Philip Ruddock. And uh, with a cheery wave, now the mayor of Hornsby in northwestern Sydney. Um, and uh, having known him quite well over the years, he, a cheery wave, he came up, we had a chat, I asked him his view on it. And without wishing to verbal him from a, from a private conversation, he essentially said, look, there's 27 million refugees. The number he quoted around the world as recognized by the UN were not going to take them all in and so the principle still applies that uh, this family who have not been found to be refugees uh, should not be allowed a position at the front of any kind of a queue um, we're not taking in refugees at the moment so I, I, I sort of put that to him and he said oh well the principle still applies that's his point of view but it's interesting that the former chief justice of the high court Sir Jared Brennan has written a letter today to the Fairfax well the nine newspapers as they are Talking about Australia's shame, uh, he says it would be a cruelty obnoxious to Australian values to deprive those children of their parents and a cruelty obnoxious to Australian values to isolate them with their parents to discourage future people smugglers. Basic and important Australian values are at stake says Sir Gerard, K-B-E-A-C. And I'm told I was told late last night by people who are, um, let's say, broad, broadly associated with the movement that has inspired Jared Brennan to write this letter, that there may well be other letters from similarly uh, esteemed eminences uh, if in the legal world and other parts of the community. This campaign is not about to stop any moment soon. Yeah, well, I mean, and let's hope so from my perspective. I mean, it's an interesting time for it to gain traction. Again, though, it will be interesting for me to see how the government reacts to get a sense of where, whether or not they think it's getting traction in seats that matter as opposed to amongst, you know, what they would term the elites um, or just inside the bubble, as Scott Morrison likes to refer to it although he doesn't tend to use that too much anymore ever since that four quarters episode about what goes on inside the bubble in some other respects he's, he's changed his phraseology but I, I i am interested in some of what sir brennan said in in relation to this idea that he effectively referred to them as as being held hostage as a form of reverse bait you know and this has long been an issue you know in my mind 
locking people up who have not been classified as refugees but do have a fear, whether it's well-founded or not, about going back to their homeland and therefore refuse to go willingly and are in a legal limbo and they just get locked up and mistreated essentially as a result of that being locked up for endlessly for years without any idea of when or if there could ever be a resolution as a form of reverse bait, as a deterrent uh, to anyone else coming here. Now, whether that is a successful or unsuccessful deterrent, it's a politically successful move, or at least it has been, because Australians have liked to see the tough response. Uh, we'll see if that changes, I suppose. But it, if it, it changes, and, and on the subject of politics, just quickly, let's take a break in just a moment. You've written that you think that there could be an election this year. Uh, there's been a notion that I think the general view was that it drifted out to next year, that, that, that there was a flurry of speculation. You've brought it back a little bit and you, and you say it could be this year. Yeah, I think, I think that the 50-50 news poll, even though the primary vote didn't change, the distribution of preferences did, uh, coupled with the, the reality that you know, the vaccine rollout will be an issue for a long time, not a short time. So that's about managing that problem rather than overcoming it in time for an election. Uh, quarantine facilities can be announced, but whether they can be purpose-built in time for the election or, and whether they would even be on time if being purpose-built and on cost is another issue. The Liberal Party has a lot more funds raised. An earlier election would catch Labor a little bit on the hop, including in a policy sense, not just in a pre-selection sense. I think there are more issues potentially, including the economy as a big one, running in Scott Morrison's favour to get to the polls before the end of the year rather than wait till around April or May next year with all the unintended potential consequences of delaying the election by taking factors out of his control uh, as time goes on. Uh, he I mean, one of them, you, you, do, you do mention the economy and one of the things that we've seen is these uh, really impressive growth snapback figures that have happened, but really that's a, a short-term thing and then the numbers flatten off quite significantly. You'd kind of want to go when you're pointing to massive growth figures, even if they're coming out of a huge hole, uh, rather than where the reality that, in fact, it's going to be a long, slow slog for a while. Oh, yeah. And, and I would be worried if I was Scott Morrison about the politics of the debate over opening international borders up, because people will get increasingly frustrated that we are not opening up over time, not in time for an election later this year, but possibly in time for an election in the first half of next year. However, to open them up would be politically dangerous, because even if vaccination rates are much higher than they are, and they won't be uh, anytime soon, then there will still be plenty of people who don't get vaccinated. There'll be plenty, there'll be, as he has pointed out, the UK has got over 70% vaccination. Admittedly, that's one jab, not two, but it's getting 4,000 plus coronavirus cases every day. Now, far fewer people are getting seriously ill and dying, but I tell you what, I don't think you want to be running an election campaign in the middle of, even with the population variable of Australia, having a couple of thousand um, you know, cases of COVID every week, you wouldn't even want a couple of hundred. I mean, we see what happens with what it does to lockdowns and confidence and all the rest of it. So I, I think an early election might happen. The one caveat to that, Hugh, is that it might happen, but not if it's perceived to be opportunistic for him to go later this year. And they'll be testing that because there is always that risk that voters think cynically about someone like Scott Morrison in particular, if he goes to the polls early. So he'd want to have his ducks lined up in terms of his rhetoric around why it needs to happen 
later this year rather than go full term uh, so that there isn't uh, at least a slight backlash. That doesn't tend to happen federally. It tends to be more a state thing that some state governments that have the ability to vary their poll date can be accused of opportunism. It happened to Alan Carpenter back in 08. It cost him the election, I think, going early and been seen as a cynical politician when before that he'd been seen as the non-politician politician before he called the early poll and lost it, as it turned out, to Colin Barnett. So that'd be the one caveat on the way through. Let's take a quick break. Uh, lots more to discuss. Uh, PVO, back in a second. Welcome back. Uh, episode 97 of The Professor and the Hack. Um, you had something else you want to say about the Tamil family. Yeah, yeah, well, I know we're going to move on to some other issues, but just very quickly, this idea from the government that you can't have exceptions, you know, the, the conversation that, that I'm, I'm sure the government believe that, it flows from the conversation that you had with Philip Ruddick. I find that such bollocks, and I know you probably do too, because, we, like, society is built around ex- exceptions or exemptions being made. They do it around who gets into this country all the time uh, amongst celebrities or people with money. They do it around the nature of how you quarantine, the choice of the hotel quarantine why when it comes to refugees even have it built into the legislation to give the minister the power to grant exemptions unless there is a logic to occasionally having one so you know the the argument that you can't have exemptions because there's a queue and you can't have queue jumpers and these are the rules well the rules dictate the right for the minister to make an exemption it makes a mockery of the idea that you can't follow it you know political parties make exemptions all the time Uh, for all manner of different policy scripts. And they've actually got a purpose-built reason for having it in the legislation to give the minister that power. It's such a bollocks argument. Mm, They make exemptions for au pair girls well-connected. Indeed. Um, The Prime Minister is off at the G7. Doesn't get much bigger than this, really. Uh, And the times are enormously important. The idea is that he's taking among the things he's doing is that he's taking Australia's difficulties with China and he is seeking support from the most powerful economies in the world to build essentially a coalition. Um, It's all wrapped in diplomatic language, but at the heart of it is an attempt to uh, blunt the coercive power that China increasingly is able to um, affect uh, on trade partners, including us, this is a really important moment, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, it's interesting. Is this the third time in a row that Australia has been invited as a plus member of the G7? I think I heard Scott Morrison bragging about that before his departure. Um, but it, it, look, it, there's becoming a much more pointy logic to the topics discussed at the G7, and then particularly within some of the key nations within it, around security and economics. You know, these forms of have often only focused on, you know, particular on, on one or the other, but now those two things are becoming intertwined. And boy, the relationship with China, it just sits so front and centre now. How do you think the government has managed that and managed the reality that so many of our allies and like-minded um, Western democracies, I suppose, um, you know, have an increasing fear and concern about China, as do we, for that matter. But they all have a level of dependence on China, but none more so than us uh, economically at the same time. How do you think we're managing? 
Well, I'm not going to fault the government on this all that much. You know, I mean, of course, there are things that can be done better and all the rest of it. But it's interesting that the significant big moment of the chilling, the, the deep freeze relationship between Australia and China came from Scott Morrison getting out a little bit ahead of it and saying that there needed to be an independent global investigation into the sources of the COVID pandemic. Not a remarkable statement. People say, well, you don't say those things or you say it as part of a group with other people, you know, and that may well be true and and but the, but there's more and more need to understand what were the sources of the pandemic this is an enormous event in global history it is unremarkable it is entirely proper that there should be uh, an investigation not so that you can yeah 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 punitively point although that might be part of it particularly if there was dodgy science and labs all that sort of stuff going around the place but simply because if we're going to manage future pandemics, we have to understand what the last pandemic was. So that mm. thing, which is the most offensive thing, it seems that China has reacted to, that then has subsequently led to all these selective trade bans against various uh, exports out of Australia that has led in its own turn uh, to the kicking out of Australian journalists. So we no longer have an Australian based, an Australian journalist reporting to Australian outlets in China operating extraordinary about our biggest partner, extraordinary state of affairs. And we do know that there are some Australians there working for other international outlets. Uh, the jailing of Chung Lei, who is an Australian who is reporting, it seems on all accounts that anyone can point to without any drama um, in China, she's disappeared off the face of the earth into the gulags of China. So I think it is absolutely necessary. I'm conscious of Mark McGowan in Western Australia saying, hang on, rain in the horses. Western Australia has uh, sells $100 billion worth of chiefly iron ore to China. It buys back $4 billion. It's a $96 billion trading surplus with China and WA. Why would you want to jeopardize that? I, I can uh, obviously see the logic in that, sure. uh, chiefly from iron ore. But China is going to be the gigantic rea reality. I am, tragically, because I wish it wasn't so, I am one of those of the view that there will be a flashpoint in the coming years over Taiwan. And the results and consequences of the fight over Taiwan or the resolution of the question over Taiwan is going to determine China's place in the world and the world's place with China for the next century. Because if they uh, absorb, annex, however you want to put it, Taiwan into the Communist Party's control. Um, that how do they do it? How, how, like, I, I have a massive fear about that as well. Um, but, but I wonder, I mean, do we literally think in the coming years, possibly coming decades, that China is going to try to take Taiwan by force? Well, coming years, uh, don't sell it out to coming decades, because the calculation China is making, and there's all kinds of internal issues with China. They've got a very strong nationalistic streak within China, both within the power uh, levels within China and also within the, the Chinese people who suddenly realized that they've got, you know, scores to settle. They've got humiliations of the past to put to rest. They want to uh, you know, all the all the sort of the, you know, the girders of nationalism exist within uh, mm. within the Chinese population. And it really comes down to a question of two things. Can Taiwan defend itself by itself against this? You know, it's 24 million people. Can it defend itself against, you know, one plus billion people 
with the second largest military in the world coming after them without American help? So that's first question. Can it be done? And what's the answer to that, do you think? Well, you know, there's lots of wargaming around that. There is still some view that, that because it's easier to defend land than it is to invade it, that... Um, uh, you know that 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 it has a certain advantage, a home home ground advantage, um, but but over time, you'd say that's probably unlikely to last. China's also got all these cyber attack capacities; they can shut down infrastructure. It's presumed uh, they'd have agents, presumably within Taiwan, uh, you know, capable of targeted assassinations on key figures. These are some of the tools that um, uh, that. You know, the people who wargame this say would be available to China. So then it comes into a question of what where does the Americans where do the Americans lie? They do not have a guarantee to Taiwan to protect them from attack. There is the Taiwan Relations Act, which is deliberately vague about what might be asked of the United States. It's what they call strategic ambiguity uh, to, to keep that at bay. Would the United States could Joe Biden or his successor risk massive blood and treasure to defend Taiwan when some within the United States will say, look, it's inevitable. They're all Chinese. Who gives a rats? Um, why should we be losing thousands of our own people? I And there is that horrible possibility, which some are saying that if it did come to the United States going to the defense militarily, that they could conceivably lose and that would go to the Chinese having more will for the fight, that they will continue to sacrifice whatever's required because it becomes a central core issue for China, whereas for the United States, it never will be. So, um, you know, these are enormous and, and issues. That, you, uh, sorry, just to interrupt, but and as a fight, if it, if it becomes a hot war as opposed to starting out which i guess it probably would as a cold war to start with wouldn't it you know with, with as you mentioned the sort of the cyber attacks and and the subversive maneuvers but once it, it becomes a hot military stoush we're talking naval conflict uh in the straits and the seventh fleet being deployed potentially by the u.s whatever taiwan has to try to repel whatever china throws at it but then of course missiles in the air landing in that very small island of Taiwan, presumably, and whether or not the US tries to intercept those or or take out the Chinese Navy as it what surges with land troops towards Taiwan. I mean, this is extraordinary stuff. Is 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 that the sort of thing that's on the cards? Well, potentially, and Hugh White from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has said it could well go to a nuclear war. Um, you know, that's that's from him. Uh, what is he talking about there? The is, is, he, is he suggesting China might um, use a nuclear weapon on Taiwan and just wipe the whole thing out and then just take the land? Well, you know, one of the things that exist to get into nuclear weapons is what, what are called tactical nuclear weapons. And these, these are smaller scale nuclear weapons. This is horrible stuff to contemplate, which you use in targeted ways to take out, um, you know, usually initially defence you know, airfields, defense, naval, naval assets, and so on. But once you start to go nuclear, then the escalation potential is, is enormous. So, um, you know, the, these, these dreadful thoughts are there. But if you listen, if you read the last of the Bob Woodward books about uh, Trump, when he spoke about the defense secretary, James Mattis, 
there's a wonderful intimate portrait of James Mattis as defense secretary. Um, this man had devoted himself to, uh, you know, to, to, to as a military thinker considered to be a, 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 a deep intellect among other things, knowing that you have to do all your thinking about the worst of all possible things before the event could possibly come up. So there are people in the United States, doubtless in China as well, probably in Australia as well, who spend their days thinking about these things, mm. looking at the red line trigger points for the next escalation. And, and this is real and proximate. And given that Xi Jinping has done everything that he's done ahead of expectations, he's effectively reabsorbed Hong Kong into the national security apparatus of the Communist Party decades ahead of the expectations at the time of the handover. He has militarized those disputed reefs and made them China's own well ahead, years ahead of what even the pessimists thought that he might do. He did that very quickly. So if you look at his track record, it has been to move more quickly, uh, not more slowly, towards a solution in as he sees it in his favor. And you know what I find fascinating about that is, and I know we're going to be out of time shortly, but I, one of the things that has always impressed me about the Chinese political and, and social cultural structure, if you like, is that, you know, the Middle Kingdom is, has been the world's dominant nation um, for longer than any other country over an incredibly long period of time with a brief period, you know, post the British taking them out where they then capitulated and collapsed before rising once again as, as they're doing now. So they see, by and large, they see this as a long-term game and a reinstalling of Chinese power to where it ought to and, and, and always was, where it ought to be and always had been prior to the brief capitulation of the last few hundred years. Now, that sense of um, patience has been one of the most profoundly valuable things that China has got. And I always sort of assumed until things have heated up as much as they have now with the risks on the horizon, that that patience would be where they would win. You know, the patience to wait for Hong Kong to become theirs again initially, the patience to um, democratically try to take over Taiwan. For a while there, it looked like the pro-China forces were gaining ascendancy in the political democratic contest within Taiwan. All they had to do was win once you know, you elect them once and then they're home, essentially, because they can then start the process of bringing Taiwan under the Chinese flag. But then all of a sudden, there seems to be a loss of some of the patience. And part of it is wrapped up in the individual with China now, uh, because of the power structures that they've changed. But, you know, in Hong Kong, we all know how brutal that's become as they rush to take it over rather than to, to slowly culturally absorb it. Uh, and Taiwan, the pro- um, you know, the, the, the movement in favour of Taiwan joining China is, has all but collapsed in Taiwan in terms of its real power. Uh, and, that and that therefore brings, if China wants Taiwan, it brings the military side of it uh, to the forefront because th there are a few other alternatives they've lost on the other fronts. So it, it surprises me that they've become as rushed on some of these as they clearly have become, Hugh. Uh, when I, I, I feel like they, they, yeah, there was an inevitability about all of these things if they were more patient. 
but they've lost a little bit of that patience. Well, Deng Xiaoping's uh, famous uh, maxim was hide your strengths and bide your time. And you're right. Uh, Xi Jinping is a different kettle of fish. He's, he's galloping to go. There's no suggestion they want to take over the world, uh, no, invade no. Australia. They see Taiwan, however, as a domestic issue. And uh, the Taiwanese, um, on the evidence available, have no interest. And the polling and the votes that go on in, in Taiwan, they have no interest in in being absorbed into uh, into China, that's unlikely to um, you know to happen in a hurry. Uh, we'll leave it there because we're almost out of time. I will briefly say yeah. I've spent this week at the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial with uh, um, the nine newspapers. It has weeks to run. It is one of the most astonishing uh, collisions of a stark uh, a stark choice, as uh, the lawyer for the nine networks has said between the idea uh, that either this man was a hero in everything that he did, which is where many people would dearly love him to be perceived, or was he in fact a man who uh, shot or was involved in the murder of six um, unarmed prisoners, uh, reputations burning as a bonfire over the next few weeks were certainly one to watch. There'll be a lot more to play out in that space, and it is certainly, no, no matter what, way this goes um there are losers no doubt about that yeah a quick shout out we've got a new podcast coming women of the house your colleague stella todorovic wonderful young talent tell me about that yes no no well her first one uh which i've had a listen to and it is great uh is a, a chat with sarah hansen young uh about some of her experiences of sexism uh, in the parliament uh, and double standards, I suppose, between the treatment of men and women. And she's, I won't give them away, that's for her to do, but she's got a series lined up here. I think there's a minimum of six in total, and whether it continues after that, I think we'll see. But uh, some pretty high-profile women, uh, both from the now and the past of Parliament, uh, explaining what they confronted and they faced. And each of these female politicians has their own story, which is quite unique and independent of each other but also intertwined uh if you like in the in the in the gender uh troubles that they face so it's it's definitely worth a listen uh stella's done a great job with it and wherever you get this podcast you will find that women of the house uh, on 10 speaks uh pvo great to talk to you as always likewise you take care you too You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.